we've been talking together and looking at Colossians. And last week we talked about the fact that Christ lives in you. He lives in me. And his power is at work to live the new Christian life that we've been given. And today, uh, he just doesn't leave it out there. He, he goes, Paul goes right down into the nitty-gritty of it. And uh, he's going to speak to us about our relationships. Uh, there's a, a bride once who's uh, preparing for m- getting married and she was so nervous. You know, I know it's strange for brides to be nervous, but she was. In fact, I haven't seen one that hasn't been nervous yet. But uh, on the day when it came to the rehearsal, just the night of the rehearsal, she was so nervous that she was forgetting just the most basic things. And so the pastor said, look, I tell you, for this rehearsal, we're going to make it so simple for you. Uh, First, three things you need to do tomorrow. Just walk down that centre aisle. Remember that. Remember to walk down the aisle. That's the first thing. And the second thing you've got to remember, as you're coming down that aisle, just keep your eyes fixed up the front here. There's a platform there. Um, In our church, he said, we call that the altar. This is where things happen. Just keep your eyes on the altar, okay? Don't take your eyes off that. And as you're coming down towards it, uh, the the third thing you need to remember is that you're going to end up standing right opposite him. So keep your eyes on on your future husband and be. Don't take your eyes off him. And so she just had to remember those things, you know, walk down the aisle, right up to the altar and keep my eyes right on him. And that was all going fine in the rehearsal. It went fabulously. And then the only problem was during the ceremony the next day, people halfway along sort of heard her as she was coming down saying, I'll alter him, I'll alter him, I'll alter him, you know. <laughs> and I know some of the women there would have been going, go for it, girl, you can do it. You know? <laughs> uh, the, the truth is when it comes to relationships, sometimes we want to alter the people that we're in relationship within. But you know the truth is, that when Christ comes and lives in us, he alters our life. He changes things. And the way in which we relate to people around us is just so different to what it was before. Christ in us means that relationships are transformed. We begin living the new life in Christ. As you've got your Bibles open at Colossians 3, Uh, I just want to make some clear observations just before we start uh, about the passage in general and just some some observations before we jump right into it. Uh, Our faith must come home with us, you know. Uh, We can't just believe in, in Jesus and not let it affect our lives. It's supposed to alter us, our trust in Christ. So uh, the truest test of our faith in Christ is how we relate to others, uh, how we treat one another. Or to say it another way, the home is the first place where we test our newness in Christ, whether we're living the new life in Christ. You know, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, is that being demonstrated in our relationships? You know, last week we looked at the virtues kind of that we would clothe ourselves in. We talked about tender-hearted mercy. We talked about kindness, humility, gentleness and patience that we're to clothe ourselves and bind it all around with love. Then if we're doing that, that should affect our families. The followers in, in Colossae, in the church in Colossae, they'd been uh, having people amongst this young church who were saying, talking about heresies, that were saying, you just don't 
have to have this new life in Christ. You need to know some new mysterious things. So, so there were people that saying you have to have this kind of out there and secret knowledge in order to know the true things about God. Uh, and some people said, you've got to get special messages from angels. And kind of the, the, the heresies that were coming around were saying, life is not to be focused on down here, but it's kind of this out, in, out there supernatural kind of thing that doesn't make practical realities true. But Paul says, no, our faith is grounded in our day-to-day lives. And it has to make a difference in where we are. Paul uh, shows that in these passages. And as you notice, as you look at the passages, you'll notice that uh, Jesus is referred to as Lord or Master seven times in these verses. You know, over and over again, his Lordship is expressed in relationships when we're living the new life in Christ. Uh, second thing I want to, uh, uh, first thing, our faith must come home with us. Second thing I just want to say as an observation is that the issue here in these passages is not about uh, inferiority, it's about function. So it's about function, not inferiority. So as we've looked and we've seen this new life in Christ, Paul teaches that in the new life in Christ there's neither uh, slave nor free, Jew or Gentile, male or female. So those that uh, trust in Christ are equal. Because Christ has come, we are all equal regardless of our status. So having said that, there's no gen- so having said that there's no gender distinctions or obstacles before God when it comes to salvation. Everyone, uh, we, we all have, as individuals, have a role to play within the family. We're all disciples of Christ with different responsibilities in our discipleship. For instance, the husband and the wife are person, personal equals before God. There's no superiority or inferiority there. Uh, but they have different roles for functional purposes. And the same is true of children and parents. Both are dearly loved by God and precious and neither is more important in God's eyes. Yet they have different functions within the family, to help the family run in the most efficient and effective way. Third observation, just want to say. So the issue, there's no issue of function. It's an issue of function rather than inferiority. The third thing I want to say is that relationships are supposed to be reciprocal. So um, the instructions in our text show a real special concern for those who were looked down upon in the society. William Barclay uh, said that wives in, in that time, in the first century, were treated by husbands as objects, you know, that they could do with as they pleased. And in this environment, Paul uh, comes in and he writes about wives, about children and about slaves, and he honours them and elevates them. It's striking that Paul would even give them attention since the culture degenerated those three uh, people Severely, And yet uh, Christ, uh, Christians elevated women. They valued children and uh, set things in motion to sabotage slavery. You know, children were seen as being of little value and yet Christ would often stop in his busy schedules to hold them and touch them. The church at its very core in the way when churches came together, slave and free would eat the bread and drink the wine together at communion. People would have different roles within the church regardless of their status in society and it was the root, putting a root 
end to slavery that would be, work itself out later on. It's interesting to note that Paul admonishes those in authority as he tells husbands and fathers and masters to be loving, kind and fair. And these pairs are to be studied uh, together because relationships are reciprocal. We can't talk about a wife submitting to a husband without the husband, uh, talking about the husband loving his wife sacrificially. They go together. You can't separate them. Fourthly, I want to let you know that families, uh, to state the obvious, families are in desperate need of help today. I mean, I don't need to spend the next five minutes explaining about the seriousness of marriage breakdown, the seriousness of family breakdown, the, the uh, schisms and splits that can occur in families and the desperate need that we have for God's uh, teaching, for teaching about how the family can function, people who are committed to Christ, how they can live together. So the, the desperate need of this teaching comes clearly to us this morning. So I pray that you will listen in these next few moments with an open mind in order to, uh, to really see how Christ above all, the ultimate one at work in our lives, just uh, deconstructs and, and smashes old habits of domination, how uh, Christ in us destroys exploitation, and replaces these uh, models with loving relationships and with gracious submission. So let's have a look at the first of these three relationships. God's guidelines for marriage. Paul begins here in this passage and he says, You wives must submit to your husbands as, in, as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. And you husbands must never... Uh, uh, your husbands must love your wives and never treat them harshly. The Bible views marriage as a partnership with each partner uh, fulfilling certain roles. Colossians 3.18 begins with the duties of wives. Wives, you, you wives must submit to your husbands as is fitting uh, for those who belong to the Lord. Let me just say there is uh, probably no biblical teaching more controversial than this, uh, the, the issue of the wife's submission to her husband. So I just want to clear up a few things um, right now, first of all. I, I want to make it clear that nowhere does it say that a wife is to obey her husband. Okay, Children are to obey their, their parents in verse 20. Slaves are to obey in verse 22. But wives are to submit. Uh, there's a, a big difference. The submission is a voluntary willingness to, to come under, to, to submit. Uh, it's, a, it's a voluntary. I want you to notice husbands, that it never says, husbands, make your wives submit. It's just not there. So we want to make that clear. Uh, also, this has no application to wives. Uh, uh, out, it's, not, it's not speaking about wives separate from their husbands. So it's not talking about women in general. Uh, this application is to wives in a married relationship, not to women 
in general, okay? Uh, both husbands and wives also are to submit to the Lord and to each other. So they've got to, uh, uh, we've got to, both husbands and wives, we've got to firstly submit to God and then submit to each other. So Ephesians 5.21, where Paul is talking about family relationships in a very similar parallel passage to what we're looking at today. He, he writes, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's a mutual submission as well. Uh, the concept of submission is taught in many places in the Bible. And it, and it doesn't mean slavery and it doesn't mean or imply inferiority. The Greek word for submission means to arrange oneself under a delegated authority. And it kind of comes from the military world where soldiers were to be in control or to be in order, in order under the direction of an officer. Now, in the home, the wife uh, is to submit to the delegated authority of her husband. Now, I recognise that some of you may find this teaching highly unlikable. Uh, actually, a, a Gallup poll in 1998 showed that 69% of the public disagreed with the statement that wives should graciously submit to the servant leadership of their husbands. But the fact is that it, the teaching is here in God's word. And just because it's not popular, there's no reason to discard it. Uh, the reason for this submission is found at the end of verse 18. Look what it says there. As is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Another translation puts it this way. This is what the Lord has planned for you. A wife to submit to her husband out of the, uh, her allegiance to Christ. Uh, this submission willingly and joyfully or willingly comes out of uh, her submission to Christ. As she submits to Christ, she can submit to her husband. It's not a cultural deal. It represents God's sense of order in a marriage relationship. Submission carries the idea of entrusting oneself to the leadership of another to accomplish a task. It means that men and women work together in this way and, and when a, a Christian woman is submitted to the Lord to, and to her own husband, she will experience a release and a fulfilment that can come um, through, through this, fulfilling that function. The end result will be an environment of intimacy, of growth, of a ministry of partnership that will make a difference in the world. How does this work out practically? Mandy said at the end of the first service, you kind of make it more practical, honey, as she would. I said, submit, Mandy. Joe, <laughs> uh, it's, it's really hard to, to explain how this works out practically. And talking personally from my own marriage, you know, if I look back and think, when were times when I exercised, when, I, when Mandy had to submit to me? It's very rare, I've got to say. We have an attitude of sharing and mutuality, which means that she does it, we do it together in a kind of way that's working where I'm loving her and she's submitting. But if you had to say, in what situation? It's really hard for us to put our finger on. And I think Paul doesn't say, submit in this way. You know, you do this and she do it. And I think we've got to work that out before God. Wives, this is what your responsibility is. It's not what your husband thinks you should be doing. 
It's you before God. As you submit to Christ, how can you submit to your husbands? And husbands, before you start getting all excited, um, the next verse is kind of for, for, for you and for me. Um, it, it says in verse 19, um, and you husbands must love your wives and never treat them harshly. Throughout the Bible, God says more about the quality of a husband's responsibility or, uh, uh, than he does about the wife's submission. I personally think that um, the responsibility for a good marriage is put more on the husband. You know, bad marriages um, usually, I think, generally, very generally speaking, um, are usually because of a husband's inability to love his wife instead of a wife's refusal to, sub- to be submissive. I think that's generally uh, true. I mean, you know, I, I've yet to meet a wife who would uh, not be willing to follow the leadership of a man who loves her unconditionally. Most, most women would say, I'll sign up for a husband like that. The word husband originally meant one who holds the house together. Another image of that is of a gardener who cultivates the soil and keeps the weeds out of the soil. Um, as a husband, our responsibility is to love our wives by holding things together, by providing an atmosphere for growth and for fruitfulness in our homes where people can flourish. I heard about a husband who decided to make an appointment with a marriage counsellor because his marriage was on rocky ground. So his wife was hurt and upset and as they met with the counsellor, she began to talk and she crossed her arms and she crossed her legs and she started to say how horrible it was being married. She talked how hurt she was, how she felt a lack of respect and how their marriage was, was just loveless. And as tears filled up into her eyes and her lips started to quiver, the counsellor came up with a remedy. He uh, held her hands and and planted a kiss right smack on her lips, right there at the thing. The husband's jaw just dropped and the wife, sort of stunned, started to glow with a smile as she started to get all happy and smiley and all excited about what had just happened. And uh, the counsellor said to the husband, see, that's all she needs. And the husband took out his diary and he said, great, I'll bring her back every Tuesday and Thursday. (laughs) 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 Just like our husbands sometimes, hey? But husbands, I want to ask you, you know, when was the last time you gave your wife a passionate kiss that said you love her? When was the last time you uh, sat down and listened to her and really tried to understand her and show that you are there for her no matter what, that you love her? Um, In a parallel passage in Ephesians 5, Paul devoted twice as many words to telling husbands to love their wives as he did in telling wives to submit to their husbands. In Ephesians 5.25, it tells us that we're to love our wives in the same way that Christ loves the church. And that means I must love Mandy to the point of being willing to die for her. And this is the, the stuff of brave, heroic husbands. I mean, this is like the, the white knight on the horse coming for the princess and saying, 
I'll slay that dragon for you, you know? I mean, husbands, we don't need to be shy and bashful about that. We need to demonstrate that we will be there for our wives no matter what. And in a society that subtly undermines marriage, in a society that just puts out all different things that are desired, you know, like pornography and terrible talk and all those things that undermine the sanctity of marriage, men, it's time for us to stand up and say, we will be those guys that will cherish and love to the point of being willing to die for our wives. I don't know a woman who would uh, not want to love and submit to someone who was standing like that for their, for their wife. Amazing demonstration of that happened in Georgia, America. Uh, a, a man, uh, Mr Burris, was in the front yard when a m- young mother walked by with her little child in a stroller and then a car just screeched out of control and came towards them and he instinctively just grabbed the, the, the pusher and tried to pull it off uh, into the garden and tried to push the wife across. And what happened was the child and the mother were saved, but he lost his life. A a demonstration uh, in this true story of what husbands should be willing to do for their wives. Uh, The word agape, the word is agape, this kind of love that we're to show husbands. And this kind of love Agape love is based on commitment, not on emotions or romance or, or feelings. If you're here this morning and you, you no longer have this love for your wife, husband, let me be blunt with you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you feel like loving or not. B- the biblical word for love is a verb. It's a command. You must love. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 14, uh, 4 to 5 reminds us that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. If you don't have the feelings, it doesn't mean that you can opt out of your responsibilities. Act with love. And the emotions will usually follow. A happy marriage actually doesn't come automatically. In, ca- in, case if you, in fact, if you just let it go, it will entropy. It will die because we're self-centred and we're proud naturally. You have to work hard, husbands, on this. But husbands may prevent a sour attitude from taking root. The only time um, that... Uh, the only time that this bitterness, this word bitterness is used in the New Testament, it refers to something of in bitter taste. And Paul is telling husbands uh, not to call their wives honey and then to act like vinegar. Okay? So you've got to follow through, keep loving. Uh, as a good gardener pulls out weeds, the husband is to follow that challenge. The challenge of Hebrews 12, 15, which says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and no bitter root is able to cause, come up and cause trouble and defile a marriage. So God's principles, God's guidelines for marriage. The next part that this passage says is about God's principles for parenting. He, he goes on now to talk about this. Uh, Paul addresses the relationship here between a child and parents. 
And this is what, what it says. You children must always obey your parents, for this is what pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't aggravate your children. If you do, they will become discouraged and they'll quit trying. So here, kids have a duty to listen, a duty to carry out the instructions of their parents. Kids, that's what, uh, what Paul is calling you to do. Um, the, the sense of the word here is in, the Greek word is in a present tense, which means it's an ongoing act. You just don't obey once, and, but you keep on acting in an obedient way. Your actions and your behaviour shows that. Um, when a child obeys his or her parents, when a kid responds in that way, um, the Lord is pleased, the verse says. This is what pleases the Lord. Obedience pleases the Lord. In, in addition to the, you know, this is the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments, children obey your parents. In addition to that, when children do obey their parents, Ephesians 6.3 says it carries with it a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So for kids, obedience brings God's pleasure and it comes with a promise, the promise of long life. So why wouldn't you want to be obedient? So it's parents, we've got a responsibility to encourage and trust uh, uh, and discipline our children in a way where they can grow up to be obedient. In 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 23, God puts rebellion on par with rich, witchcraft and idolatry. Being disobedient is just as bad as witchcraft and idolatry. Uh, why would that be? Well, because the outworking of disobedience is just terrible. It's destructive. And the blessing of obedience is so Great and so wonderful that Paul would say, you've got to work really hard at this. Parents, take the task of uh, bringing up your children, of training your children to obey in all seriousness because that will direct their lives for the future. We need to be engaged and encouraging and we must almost also expect obedience from our children. And that's why Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21 says to fathers, Hey, don't aggravate or uh, don't aggravate your children. Um, if you if you do, they'll become discouraged and they'll quit trying. Another version says, don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. You know, sometimes it's hard not to get upset with your kids, isn't it? Especially when things like this happen. Imagine having that to clean up, hey? Those parents. Are, we hope Christ lives in the parents, don't we? <laughs> there you go there are times when it's hard parents but you can do this um, in, the, in the Old Testament Joshua was strong in his resolve for his family to serve the Lord remember he said as for me and my house we will serve the Lord Eli on the other hand he was one that uh, was condemned because of his failure to restrain his sons well, Paul here uses the word fathers to show the kind of strategic role that parents, dads play in parenting. The Greek word certainly has mothers included as well. It's kind of um, included in the thought behind the Greek word. And I think one of the reasons he does specify the role of father, though, is because dads have a propensity, don't they, to become, uh, to cause bitterness in their children. Um, in Paul's day, the father was more like a dictator than a daddy. You know, his word, uh, at his word, children could suffer incredibly. 
with, with beatings and it was right, right acceptable. Now, it, it said uh, by Barclay that, that the word of a father could, put, could mean that the child could be put to death. And in that society, uh, it was so important that these words came. Do not discourage, uh, do not uh, you know, aggravate your children so they become discouraged and give up. You know, um, this week in um, starting points, we started in, our, in, in doing a parenting course, a four-week parenting course here. And uh, some of the things that uh, came out in that course were things that we could do, uh, ways in which you can actually discourage your children by the way you're parenting. And, and one of the ways was a, a kind of being a neglecting parent. And uh, some of you might identify with this or have known parents. It's the kind of parent that's whatever will be, will be. This kind of parent has a low value on relationship with the child but, uh, uh, and also a low value on level of control. So they're not disciplining them strongly and they're not expressing their love in relationship strong. Whatever will be, will be. Now, parents like this actually um, ignore their children. They, they don't want to have an influence in their life. Uh, the father has no time for his children. Sometimes they're so busy that they never spend time sitting down and talking with them. And what can happen in these children is that a s- deep-seated resentment can grow. Uh, children in these homes uh, end up feeling unloved and unaccepted and they may end up looking elsewhere as they grow up for their love needs to be met. The indulgent parent is another kind of parent that can end up discouraging their, their kids and quit them from trying in life, uh, you know, help them like cause them to quit trying. The indulgent parent is kind of like the buddy parent who's got a high relationship, you know, really wants to be the best friend of the child but is low on levels of control. So discipline is low but relationship is great. Oh, come on, I want to be your buddy. These people indulge the children and these types of fathers can give their children everything that they want and it's not good. It's not good because the child who is indulged all the time can become restless and dissatisfied and and spoiled in the way that they live. Uh, There's also that coercive parent. This is kind of like the, you know, the sergeant major parent who expects their children to fall straight into line and anything out of line will be harshly treated. In this, uh, this kind of parent has a low value on relationship and a high value in the level of control. Discipline is very important, but the relationship is not so important for them. In here, uh, some some dads end up uh, criticising their children constantly. They even sometimes call them names, be sarcastic, ridicule them, can knock the stuffing out of a child. You know, a child just feels like, I just want my dad or my parents to, to, to not be so harsh on me. Uh, parents like this can intimidate their children, make threats and unfair expectations and the child just will be at that point where they feel like giving up. So what kind of parents uh, did God have in, in mind when he says, you know, don't aggravate your children? I think he was talking about a kind of a parent that we could use like an authoritative parent that um, is a consultant parent, one that has a high value on relationship, kids I want you to always know that I love you and I'm here for you. But also a high level of control where kids know what our expectations are of them, where we know, they know when they're stepping over boundaries because we're taking the time to communicate it clearly and in love. And kids never for one minute doubt that they're cared for, but they're also steered in a loving, caring direction 
Why? Because we want kids to grow up with self-discipline and self-control so that they can be a blessing to wherever they go. Oh, parents, we need to take time to do this. Some questions that we can ask uh, 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 for us to see how we're, how we're going in this. When, 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 he's, when Paul says, you know, don't exasperate your children, don't aggravate your children, uh, I wonder, here's a brief sort of few questions that you can ask to determine how well you're doing in this area. Here's some questions. Uh, one might be, do I believe that my children are not mine, but rather they're a gift from God and are entrusted to me? You see, if you realise that they're, a, they're gods, you won't have to have them being exactly doing everything you want. You'll be able to love them and lead them. Second question, am I partnering with God? Am I calling on Christ in me to enable my children to become the men and women that God intends them to be? Thirdly, do they know how delighted I am about them? You know, do they feel like I'm on their side? Do kids doubt my love? Do they really know that I love them? Fourth question, am I living under the leadership of Christ in my life so that my children will have a model to follow? And kids look at you, do they see Christ? Fifthly, am I calling my children to obedience and providing corrective guidelines and discipline that is both firm and fair? Well, God's uh, principles for parenting. Uh, Paul continues on and he talks about the workplace now. And in verse 22, he begins. And we come to this teaching now about slaves and masters. Um, most homes in, in Paul's time had slaves in them. And it fits into a general section here of how we're to live our lives out in the family because families had slaves attached to them. And the Colossi Church, no doubt, they had slaves as well and they had slave owners and, and they were both members. And it was probably the only place in society that slaves and slave owners mixed together in a kind of uni unified way without racial or class distinctions. So here's just a few quick uh, background things to keep in mind when we come into this slaves and, and masters kind of uh, section. First, at the time, there were almost 50% of the inhabitants of the Roman Empire were slaves at this time. And uh, it's important to know that slavery wasn't kind of like, um, you know, like we might imagine where they were, it was kind of on racial grounds. No, if uh, the Roman Empire, if they took over, uh, uh, conquered a, a people, those people would become the slaves. And so uh, that would, there would be many different people that were slaves and not purely along racial grounds. Uh, the second thing is that Paul didn't call for the overturning of slavery. He didn't, in this thing, say, slavery is wrong. You've got to stop it. We've got to do it. He didn't come right out in open defiance against the Roman authorities. Um, but the Roman Empire ultimately lost its commitment to slavery as the gospel took root in, in, in the Roman Empire. Um, and as the gospel penetrated further into the culture, more and more masters and slave owners started treating each other like brothers and sisters in Christ. And thirdly, uh, while masters and slaves relationships are not exactly like um, employee and employer relationships, some of you might feel like you're a slave if you're working for a bad employer, but there are some parallels with some principles that we can just quickly pour out, pull out now in these last remaining minutes that we have. So let's take a look at them. It says, slaves, obey, 
uh, you slaves must obey your earthly masters in everything that you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. Obey them willingly because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work hard and cheerfully um, at whatever you do, as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord who will give you an that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done. For God has no favourites who can get away with evil. First thing, Paul begins by saying, hey, do your best at your job at all times. We're to work hard, not just when our bosses are there with us, watching us over our shoulders. We're to work when our bosses aren't even there. We're to give our best no matter what. Why? Because in our hearts, Christ lives in us and we want to be working as though we're working for Christ himself. So work hard even when your boss is not there. Um, years ago, there was a missionary who was responsible for getting the nationals in a certain country to, to do jobs together. And he was really frustrated because these nationals were really lazy and they only worked when he was watching them. So uh, when he left, they would stop their jobs and they'd just sit around. You know? And when he came back, they'd all start working again. But this man had a glass eye and one day he got something in it and he pulled out his eye and he put it on a stump. And when he returned, he found everybody was still working. You know, they were, they were working because his eye was watching them, you know. And he was thrilled with this. It was a great breakthrough for him. And so what he started to do was leave his eye purposely on the stump. And uh, all, what, what happened is he came back one day and all the uh, people were lounging around and he looked and they'd put a hat over his glass eye <laughs> so that he couldn't see. Uh, we got to work all the time, working as though we're working for the Lord, not just when our bosses are, are watching. Secondly, uh, why don't you live tomorrow, uh, make your work worship? Why don't you give your whole work that you do tomorrow as a, as a, as, as a gift to God? Say, God, I'm worshipping you with my energy, with my work, with my efforts. It, 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 it means that we work, working wholeheartedly in everything we do, work Give it to the Lord as a gift. Worship him out of reverence for the Lord. Uh, probably, probably understood your job, no matter what it is, can be an act of worship. You can give it to him. Sometimes we get this backwards. You know, sometimes we look to our, our jobs to provide us with meaning and significance. Instead of looking for meaning in your job, bring meaning into it as you work in an attitude that's praising God, giving him worship every day. You can do that tomorrow. You can get up and do that. A great way to do that is thirdly to recognise Jesus as your boss. Uh, come in and say, Jesus, today I'm working for you. Imagine him giving you your to-do list and imagine that you're going to meet him at the end of the day and wholeheartedly give yourself to the, your work as though you're giving it to Christ himself. And it's interesting here in this uh, uh, verse here, um, it says, remember that the Lord in verse 24 will give you an inheritance as your reward and the master you are serving is Christ. It's saying, as you work hard, God's going to give you an inheritance. So work as though you're working for a raise. You know, say, God, I'm working my guts out so that you will give me a reward. Because that verse is saying that if you work hard, you'll be rewarded. He'll give you an inheritance. Well, um, what a challenge this passage is for those who live in Christ. Um, uh, masters 
provide for your slaves what is right and fair. Uh, this is the, the final element of this passage is to say, you slave owners, you must treat even those uh, who are your slaves fairly and with, with care. You're not to just be harsh with them, care for them. And if you're a boss today, the, the application here is to say, treat those people under you with the respect and honour of people that are made in the image of God and care for them. As we, as we finish, I just wonder what are some things that we can take away this morning as we go into this week with Christ as our, as our Lord and how can we live as a result of this? So I just want to suggest a few things. In marriage, if, you, uh, if your marriage is a little bit rocky at the moment, I just want to let you know that if one spouse is willing to change, then the marriage can change. Don't just wait for your husband or for your wife to change. You can change. You can do that. Uh, wives, you don't have to wait for your husbands to be more loving before you submit to him. In fact, you can respect him and affirm his significance. And his love may actually start to flow as you do that. Likewise, husbands, you don't have to hold out on love until you see your wives act submissively. When you determine to love your wife as Christ loved the church, you will make it much easier for her to love and to respect you and to submit to you. Uh, wives, why don't you tell your husband today that with God's help, you're going to follow his lead. If you can think of one area where you might have been you know, uh, not, you know, not being submissive, why don't you just mention it to him? Husbands, think of one thing you can do today to put into action love. Clearly demonstrate it sacrificially, even if you don't feel like doing it. If you have any bitterness towards your wife, why don't you confess it to her and work through that together? I want to say just for the family, determine today that you can step, take the steps that you need if you're a parent or if you're a child. Um, children, uh, practice first-time obedience. If your parents say to you to do something, don't say, oh, no, mm, no, please, no, or I'll do it later, or say, yes, their jaw will just drop and they'll be amazed. So, so practice that. Um, uh, parents, ask your children this week, why don't you, you spend some time, just ask them, hey, is there anything that I'm doing that frustrates you kids? You know, is there any way that I'm treating you that's really making you mad, getting you upset? You know, because I don't want to do that. Uh, at work, bring Jesus to work tomorrow. Invite him along with you. Employees, you know, try and picture Jesus as your boss, greeting you at the, at the gate tomorrow at the door. And, and I, I reckon you'll be able to see that your work is different as you do it for him, for his glory. And if you're an employer, I want to challenge you, pray for your employees this week. And maybe ask them uh, this week, how, whether they feel that you're treating them fairly. That would be a great challenge. See what their response is. I want to uh, let you know that in everything we do, in marriage, in family or in work, we must do it in recognition that we have a master, a Lord over us. As such, our attitude should always be to please God and to do his will. So w whether it be submitting or loving, whether it be obeying or encouraging, whether it be working or supervising. And the truth is our master will reward us for our servants 
service to him. Colossians is all about the fact that Christ is above all. And I asked you this morning, is Christ above all in your life? Is Christ above all in your relationships? Because it makes all the difference. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you that you reign in our lives. 